Well, I hope you've got uh, Exodus 3 open uh, in front of you. I wonder uh, whether you've ever had an encounter with somebody that you've never forgotten. Uh, maybe uh, your path has crossed with some famous uh, name. Uh, maybe you've uh, met somebody unexpectedly, uh, and it's always stuck in your mind that you, you saw that person. Well, the greatest moment of your life is not when you saw that person. The greatest moment in your life is when you encountered the Lord. That is the greatest moment in every believer's life. Uh, and it is the most wonderful and awesome thing that we could possibly say about any human being that in their life, in this time, in, on this earth, they encountered God. And one day we shall see him as he is in his glory. And when we see him, we shall be like him. So our whole lives are really bound within the context of encountering God. Those are the most significant events in your life. Now, therefore, every story in the scripture that speaks of a man encountering God has something to say to us because God does not change. Because across the time and so many things that have changed since the days of Moses, God is the same. Uh, and thus this passage is recorded by the Holy Spirit for us this morning here in Hothorpe Hall because the same God, the God of Moses, is our God. And the story of the burning bush it is one of the great Old Testament encounters between a man and his God. But it is set in such an undramatic setting. I mean, look in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert uh, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, Moses was tending the flock. And uh, the tense of, these, of this verb uh, indicates something significant for uh, Moses, that this wasn't just something he happened to be doing that day. You know, what shall I do this morning? I'll look after sheep. Well, he was only looking after sheep that morning because he'd been looking after sheep, well, for morning after morning after morning after morning after month after month after year after year after decade after decade. I mean, what had he done since he left Egypt? Well, as far as we can see, he looked after sheep. And uh, there may well be, I mean, in the Hebrew, the verb underlines the continuity. Uh, he was tending. That was what he did with his life at this point anyway. Um, you could say as much as 40 years is packed into that one phrase in verse 1. He was tending the flock. Now, that isn't altogether the most exciting occupation, is it? it? It's not something that you'd ride home about with every, you know, with a huge, I'm sure there is a lot more to looking after sheep than we who don't have much to do with sheep might imagine, but it remains the case that it was not a dramatic situation to be in. And it was certainly not what Moses had wanted to be doing with his life. I mean, Moses had an extraordinary beginning, didn't he? A rescued in the teeth of uh, a disaster, it would have seemed, uh, born to a, a family of, uh, of Jews, Hebrews, in Egypt at a time when Pharaoh had commanded that Egyptian boys were drowned at birth and escaping in the most unusual and dramatic circumstances, rescued by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And remarkably, in the amazing providence of God, uh, brought up within a household and nursed by his own mother uh, in that household. A and we don't know everything, of course, that went on there, but from his earliest years, although in this privileged environment, he, he was being taught by his mum the truths about the God of Israel, the God who preserved his life. And when he grew up, uh, he had this sort of double heritage. He had all the privileges of being brought up in Pharaoh's household. 
in the household of probably the most famous man on earth. And yet knowing that he was actually a Hebrew and he wanted to serve the purposes of the living God. And we read in chapter 2, 11, uh, how he went out in his, uh, his zeal as a, as a grown man. Uh, and he went out to where, verse 11, his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He'd lived his years in the palace. And he went out and he saw, but he knew that these were his people. And his heart is clearly moved by their distress. And he tries to rescue his people. He tries with all the energy he could bring to the job. And so when he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew, uh, it, it, something boils over within him. Uh, and he, he kind of hardly help himself. I mean, he's a bit careful. He glances this way and that. Verse 12, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian. You know, this is the first uh, uh, strike of uh, uh, Israelite freedom. Uh, so he thought at the time. And he hid him in the sand. And, and he goes out the next day and, you know, what shall I do next? Uh, and he finds these two Hebrews fighting and he says, uh, why are you fighting each other? You know, this is, this is out of place. Here you are an oppressed people. You shouldn't be fighting one another. And, and the man says, verse 14, who made you ruler and king judge over us? Uh, are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And he suddenly realizes everybody knows. And it all goes terribly wrong. It all backfires and he flees for his life. And he abandons all the privileges that he had in Egypt uh, to save his skin. Uh, and he abandons all uh, his people's apparent future. Uh, and he, he flees for his life and he goes to the back of beyond. And he ends up, uh, providentially we would say, but accidentally at the time anyway, meeting the daughters of uh, a man called Jethro and he rescues them from some thugs. And he ends up marrying one of Jethro's daughter and looking after Jethro's sheep. They're not even his sheep. Year after year after year after year after year after year. I could go on 40 times. Uh, you know, he must have thought, it's all gone wrong. What am I doing here? It's not what he'd wanted to do with his life. Maybe at the moment you're doing something and you're thinking, why am I doing this? What is the virtue and merit, the point of, of where I am now? It's not what I wanted to do. What a mess I've made of life. And that's certainly, I think, what Moses may have felt. And it's certainly not where he wanted to be. You see, he'd gone to Midian. Well, if you've looked in a map, he, he was brought up in Egypt at the height of civilization. Okay. And he runs, he escapes uh, narrowly, probably, uh, out of Egypt, uh, and he goes to Sinai. Well, Sinai is a pretty inhospitable area, desert area, uh, and he traveled the far side of Sinai. He goes clean across Sinai, over beyond the Gulf of Aqaba, and you come down eventually to Midian, and it really was the back of beyond. It, you know, it was like leaving the, the lights of New York or London and, and finding a desert island nobody's ever heard of. Uh, and, and there he is in the back of beyond. And you get just a slight flavor of how he felt about things. In verse 22, we read that, uh, that he had, he and Zipporah, uh, Jethro's daughter, gave birth, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom. And the word Gershom sounds like the Hebrew for an alien there, an alien there. He doesn't belong. Uh, he, he's in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing. Well, you might have said. Uh, and yet, and yet, and there is a big yet, God had not let go of Moses. Now, for 40 years, I don't think there was a great deal to show for God's hand on Moses. Well, no, that's not true. Amazingly, you know, God provided him a, a, a home where he was welcome, a, a uh, a girl that he married, children, a job, and, and yet it was just so far from what he'd wanted to do. And yet we can say this, that Moses was being prepared. And God works in preparation of people in some very unexpected ways. Uh, and God's preparation of people isn't necessarily what we would have expected. And God's preparation of us can be tough 
and long-term and inconspicuous and unideal from our point of view. I mean, here is the great deliverer of Egypt, uh, of the, of the uh, Israelites from Egypt, uh, being prepared for the task. And what is he doing? He's looking after sheep for 40 years. Um, and we need to remember that uh, things aren't always what they appear to be. And God still reigns in times of frustration. We need to know that. In times where it seems as though we're in some huge dead end, God has not abandoned us. He has not forgotten us. God did not forget Moses. And what was God doing over those 40 years? Well, we can't say it's spelled out to us, but there's a very interesting verse in Numbers 12, verse 3. And it is a very remarkable statement. And it says this, that Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, can you imagine that? Moses was a humble man, more humble, and only God could say this, more humble than any other human being alive. Moses, Moses. (laughs) Doesn't quite sound like the Moses of chapter 2, verse 12, who goes out all guns blazing to kill an Egyptian. God did something in Moses over 40 years. Now, we see we don't change in a hurry. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, We can be so slow to change. I wonder if you're frustrated at the the rate of apparent progress in yourself or in somebody else. Uh, God took his time in Moses, but he did it thoroughly so that Moses becomes the most humble man on earth. And maybe 40 years with Jethro's flock was not such a bad preparation for the next 40 years with God's flock. Um, One commentator says, uh, I think helpfully, God is not in our kind of hurry. And that's helpful, that's important. I mean, just think of of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, another great deliverer of his people uh, but, you know, he, he, he goes, he, he's taken into Egypt in the most uh, awful circumstances as a slave and he's sold in a slave market and he lives as a slave and everything begins to brighten up when he when wins Potiphar's uh, admiration and trust and confidence and he runs this man's household uh, and then everything goes pear-shaped, if you remember, Uh, when he ends up uh, being accused by Potiphar's wife and he ends up in prison for two years. So there's a man for two years. This is the great agent God is going to use. And he's a slave for however many years and then he's a prisoner for how many years. What is God up to? You see, God was preparing Joseph. And David, I mean, we think of David as the great king, uh, the great psalm writer, Uh, You know, he spent, long before he became king, he was running around trying to escape being killed for year after year. I mean, Saul tried to murder this man again and again. Uh, And he just spent years. I mean, he even ended up living among the Philistines, pretending to be insane and dribbling at the corner of his mouth. I mean, this is the great man God, God was shaping and molding to be the man he would use. And and then think perhaps most uh, awesomely of the Lord Jesus. 30 years, 30 years from our point of view in obscurity. Oh, there's a a great bit of light shining on his birth. Uh, And there's there's just a bit in the temple when he's a a young, uh, when he's he's just 12. And and then silence. For 30 years, silence. And, you know, I'm I'm sure there were remarkable things that could have been said about the Lord Jesus. Uh, And yet we don't hear of any of it. Uh, And the Lord Jesus himself lived those years to God's glory in an utterly inconspicuous way. And maybe that's what God's calling you to do at the moment. Serving God's purposes in an inconspicuous way. And sometimes you hear of other people and they seem to be being used in such remarkable and dramatic and uh, and wonderful ways. And you kind of think, well, it's not like that for me. Well, well, take heart because God, God still knows what he's doing in the years that are inconspicuous and apparently 
going nowhere. You see, Moses was becoming the sort of man that God could use. And if you feel stuck and frustrated and unfulfilled, remember Moses' undramatic 40 years in the hands of the God who knows what he's doing with us. So, an undramatic setting, but a dramatic encounter, as I've indicated. All the most significant events in history and all the most significant events in our lives is to do with the revelation of God to us. Exodus 3 is seminal for Moses' life. It's seminal in the history of Israel. It's told in detail from chapter 3, verse 2, to chapter 4, verse 17. So we're just taking a chunk at the beginning. And as I said, it all began in the most ordinary way. Because you see in verse 1, Moses led the flock to the far side of the desert. I mean, that was the sort of thing he did in searching for fresh pasture all the time. But on this occasion, something unusual happened. In verse 2, we read, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. He saw a bush on fire. Now instantly it's explained to us. So in verse 2, we know what's happening. The Lord is there, Moses. Don't you know? No, he doesn't know. All he sees is a bush that's burning And then he reflects on the fact that somehow or other, the flames don't seem to be destroying the bush. Now, I'm not sure how many excitements there are in life with sheep, but probably not very many. So Moses thought, well, this is exciting. I'll go over and see. Uh, And he gets much more than he bargained for. See, at the heart of it, of course, isn't the bush, nor the flames, nor Moses, but the one who chose to speak to him. The angel of the Lord, it says in verse 2, appeared to him. Uh, And when the angel of the Lord speaks, we find in verse 4 and onwards, it's God who speaks. This is an awesome revelation of God himself. Uh, And this chapter begins with Moses, and almost immediately it ceases to be about Moses. Uh, It becomes about God. We we think we're reading a story about Moses. But actually, it's really not about Moses. It's really about Moses' God. I mean, Moses, in the whole of verses 1 to 12, is mentioned five times. And God's name comes 12 times. And then, if you just look at the last three verses of um, Exodus 2, in in the Hebrew, they're not in my NIV, The word God comes five times. So in in the space of 15 verses, uh, God's name comes 17 times. Uh, So although it is in one sense about Moses, actually it's not Moses who is at the heart of this story. Uh, This is about God. It's always about God. Uh, And in this passage, I think there is a structure to it. There are three aspects of God's character Uh, that Moses is confronted with, and confronted is the right word, I think, so that by the end of verse 6, he is brought low and overwhelmed. At this end of verse 6, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look on God. And then there are three aspects of God that are then added, as it were, that lift him up for future service. So there's a kind of uh, shape, as it were, in what happens. He starts with just interest, curiosity. And as he begins to realize whom he is dealing with, he is brought down and down to a point where he hides his face. And then as God continues to reveal himself, he is brought up, as it were, and out into service. And I think if we're going to be used by God, we need to have something of that experience of God, that we are brought low before him, and only then sent out by him. So firstly, he is brought low, verses 1 to 6. He is brought low, firstly, by the God who draws near. A God who draws near with a purpose for the future. And you say, well, where exactly is that? 
Well, just look in verse 1. The end of verse 1 is mistranslated, if you take the Hebrew, it's mistranslated in practically every English translation, or at least the ones I've looked at. Because it says in my translation, he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's not how the Hebrew says it. The Hebrew says it the other way around. It says that he, he led the flock to the mountain of God, Horeb. And that key phrase, the mountain of God, in the Hebrew is the first phrase. That's how we encounter this place. It is from the beginning known as the mountain of God. We find it's also called Horeb, and elsewhere we find it's called Sinai. But, but why is this particular mountain known as the mountain of God? It's a mysterious description. There are plenty of mountains. So what's this one doing that's so special? The mountain of God. It, it is called that because of what God will do there. It's not at this point called that because of what God has done. Where there are lots of places that are famous because of what has happened. Uh, you know, we, 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 we identify things in the light of their history. Uh, this is a famous place to be because such and such a thing happened here. Well, this is known as the mountain of the Lord before anything apparently famous has happened here. It is known in this way because of what God will do here. God is the God of the future. Uh, he is always the God of tomorrow. Oh, I don't mean by that he's not the God of yesterday or of today. But he's always in a way we can never be. He is on top of the future. So what is special about this place? Well, look at verse 12. This is the place where God will bring Moses back. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses says, who am I? And God says, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign that it's I who sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. The you, at the end there, is plural. It isn't just you, Moses, but you, that is the people of Israel, you will stand in front of this mountain. I mean, that looked most unlikely at this particular point. I mean, here's this bloke nobody has ever seen in Egypt for the last 40 years. And, he, and he's being told that the whole people will be worshipping God at this mountain. This is the mountain of the Lord. It's where Aaron will meet Moses in chapter 4, verse 27. It's where Jethro will meet Moses in chapter 18, verse 5. It's where God will come down and reveal himself in fire on the mountain and declare his law to Israel through Moses, Exodus 19 and onwards. It's where Moses and Joshua will go up in Exodus 24. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, this mountain is frequently simply called the mountain. The mountain, the mountain of the Lord. It's where later God met with Elijah in 1 Kings 19. It's no accident that he came to that mountain because God had future purposes for his coming there. And if you look at what God says, it's scattered with that little word will, that this is what will happen. Verse 12, you will worship God on this mountain in the future. Verse 17, he promises that he's going to bring the Israelites out into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. It's what will happen in the future. Uh, verse 18 to, uh, onwards, he, he tells them what will happen again and again. The elders will listen to you. Um, verse 19, he, you, the king of Egypt will not let you go. Uh, so, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand. Uh, at the end of that, he will let you go, end of verse 20. Verse 21, and I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed to you. Uh, and uh, verse 22, you will... Uh, you will go out, you will plunder the Egyptians. Will, 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 will. God does not stand and just speak to us about yesterday. He is always the God of the future. Uh, and I don't know how you feel about your future. Sometimes we get very anxious about the future. Uh, when you are God's child, you do not need to be terrified of the future because the future is in the hand of your father. God who draws near with purpose for the future to speak in the present. Now the fire sets up the meeting. 
But God hasn't just come to do sort of pyrotechnics. He hasn't just come to impress uh, with the physical and the visible. Uh, You see what actually happens when he comes to the bush. Verse 4, when the Lord saw he'd gone over to look, God called to him. God called to him. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Verse 6, then he said. Verse 7, the Lord said. And verses 4 through to 12, apart from verse 11 when Moses is speaking, it is God speaking every verse records what God said. And it goes on and on and on. Verse 14, God said. Verse 15, and God also said. And it is all God speaking. So the fire acted as a means by which God brought his attention to that spot so that he might be there to hear what God said. So Moses saw a manifestation of God, but at the bush he above all heard God. Now this morning we have no burning bush, we have no visible form, but we have the word of the Lord. Now, some people want the flames. They want the excitement. They want the dramatic, but they haven't got much heart for the words of the Lord, in which case you will be a stranger to God, however exciting your experience. Because Satan can appear as an angel of light, but there's one thing Satan never does. He never brings the words of life. That's what Jesus does. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, God may use all sorts of means to draw us to the point that we are willing to listen to him. So he used the bush in this particular occasion. Uh, He uses events and tragedies and circumstances and sometimes horrendous things in people's lives that bring them to the point that they they cry out to God, God, sometimes uses dreams. Remember Jacob's dream. And he uses dreams sometimes today. Uh, By which means he draws the heart and mind of people to the point that they will listen to his word. And that's what God is doing. Uh, And his word is powerful. His word, what did he do to make the world? What what immense scientific uh, uh, endeavor did he undertake? All he did was that God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's the power of the word of God. How, how will Christ raise the dead? The, how would he reconstitute the bodies that have been moldering in the dust or destroyed in conflagration or burn up to nothing? How will he possibly reconstitute us all? The voice of Jesus will be sufficient. That is the power of the word of God and the word became flesh. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. One day you will see him. You will see his unveiled glory. But we could not live and see that this morning. But one day you will. So he comes with purpose of the future to speak in the present to one he knew from the past. Look in verse 4. See, when he went over... There's one word that he, the first words he hears, God called to him from within the bush. This is, as far as we know, the Lord had not verbally spoken to Moses before in his life. No doubt his mum had told him and uh, he had heard. (coughs) But but here was something more. uh, And he heard a voice saying, Moses, Moses. Now, when I meet somebody I've never met before, I have to introduce myself. I have to say, well, you know, this is my name. How nice to meet you. But on this occasion, uh, God needed no introduction to Moses. He never needs an introduction to us. Uh, He already knew him. Verse 6, you discover he knew his father as well. I am the God of your father. And he knew his ancestors. He knew him. And he calls him Moses, Moses. Doubled name. Do you remember that little lad in the temple? And he hears a voice, Samuel, Samuel. Or do you remember that pretty horrendous character, Saul of Tarsus? 
on the ground before the blinding light. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He already knows us, and he knows the worst about us, and yet he reveals himself to us. This is the God who draws near with purpose for the future to speak in the present to one he knows from the past. That's always true of God. Secondly, he is brought low by the God who is set apart, verse 5. Instantly, he gets a word of warning. Now, this is a wonderful moment. God is revealing himself to Moses. And having said his name, Moses, the first thing God says to him is, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. So the place where you are standing is, is holy ground. And the first thing God does is warn him. When we come to the reality of God, the first thing we need is warning. We're so eager, aren't we, in churches to welcome. We have welcome teams. We want everybody to feel welcome this morning, and that's great. At, at a human level, yes, of course, we, we want to be welcomed, and we want to welcome others. And yet, uh, Moses didn't receive a kind of welcome pack, did he? I've never been in a church with a warning team. But the more I think about it, I wonder if that isn't rather a good idea. Warning team. But that's what the church is. There's a sense in which it's only in the context of the warning that the gospel makes any sense. That we've got a holy God who will consume what is evil. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, says John the Baptist. <laughs> All these these religious leaders queuing up to being baptized. We'd say, hallelujah, come on, brothers. And he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Amazing, really. And you know, this is the very first occurrence in the Bible of the word holy. Look at it again, verse 5. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Alec Matias says there is that in the nature of God which banishes and endangers sinners. Uh, the God of our imagination endangers nobody. The God of popular fiction is sort of just floating in the sky. He's an explanation for things when we don't know how otherwise to explain them, if he's there at all. That, that sort of God endangers nobody. But the holiness of God, the reality of God... God consumes what is unholy. God is not safe. God is not safe. He's not in our pocket. And you might feel, or it might be felt, well, this is the burning bush story. Don't you know this? And there were flames and there was ore and Moses all those centuries ago. He was alarmed. Of course he was, but I'm not in the desert. I don't need to be alarmed by God. Don't you need to be alarmed by God? Has the God of Moses gone through a character change? Have the centuries rubbed off the sharp edges of the Lord Almighty? Has he somehow shrunk in the 21st century to accommodate himself to our rationalistic, humanistic mindset? Oh yes, we find in Christ God's mercy, but that's not because God is less holy. Indeed, the cross only makes sense because God is that holy. He is so holy, his wrath can only be turned away from you at that sort of cost, that God has to become man and stand between you and the wrath of God. That's what happened at Calvary. You take away the wrath of God and Calvary becomes just an insignificant mystery. The cross only makes sense because God is holy. And when we see him, we will tremble as well as rejoice. And Moses has to take off his sandals because the very ground is holy because God is there. And fire is associated with God throughout Exodus. Fire drew Moses here, but it also is a danger to Moses. So Exodus 3, it's fire that expresses God's presence. In Exodus 13, the people of Israel are led by a pillar of fire by night and of cloud by day. Exodus 19 20 to 24, when, when God comes down on Mount Sinai, we read that the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. You see, God 
is dangerous in his holiness. Uh, when in Revelation 1, John sees the risen Jesus, his face is like the sun shining in its full glory. It's dangerous to look at. There's blazing fire. Hebrews 12, 29, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. New Testament, as well as old. That is your God. And if we don't tremble, we're, we don't know who we're dealing with. So he draws near to Moses, this God. He has set apart this God, and he is the God of eternal faithfulness. Look in verse 6. Then he said, and he self-identifies. He identifies himself. And the first word is, I am. And it's an emphatic, I am. And it's a significant, I am, because down in verse 14, when Moses, 13, God, Moses asked, what name shall I give you? What, who shall I say sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And the great name of God, which is indicated in our translations with the capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, the Hebrew word Yahweh, which no one's quite sure how to pronounce because they regarded it as so holy that they never spelled it out fully uh, when they wrote it down. Yahweh, the, the, he's based on the word I am. I am who I am. Uh, he always is the I am. Uh, and then he speaks of himself uh, in, in, in the following phrases. Uh, uh, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He was afraid to look at God. Five times the great, the great Hebrew word Elohim. Interestingly, a plural word. God's name rings out. And yet this awesome name, will you notice, this awesome God, this God of terrifying fire, this God of awesome power, he reveals himself as the God of people. I am the God of, well, you could have said of the universe. Could have said of creation. You could have identified God with immensities. Instead, he becomes the God of your father, Amram. The God of Amram. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. And immediately, God lines up his name alongside the name of people. Isn't that remarkable? We're so used to it, perhaps. But he associates himself with people, the people of past generations. This isn't some novel God who's just turned up. He is the one who always is, I am, in every generation. The God of the past as well as of the future. And both those are so important. The God of proven faithfulness. The God of Moses' father, Amram, who watched that little basket with his new son floating out into the river Nile with his mouth, his, his heart in his mouth, wondering what on earth is going to happen to my child and found that God was faithful in the days of danger. He's the God of Abraham who left everything that he knew and found God was sufficient for him. He's the God of Isaac who lay strapped on an altar about to be slain and discovered that God is the God who could provide. And he's the God of Jacob whose waywardness was disciplined by God so he becomes a man shaped by grace. Moses is to understand this is the same God who speaks to him. And that's your God too. The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So in Matthew 22, Jesus refers to his father in exactly those terms. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The God of all ages, the God of the past as well as of the future. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And that's where we all need to be, brothers and sisters. We need to come to the point of fear. We need to come to the point where we are very, very small because God is so great. And where we are very, very dirty and unworthy 
before a God who is so holy. And we are so mortal before a God who, who is eternal. And when God is great in our eyes, we're small. We can't be big and have a great God. When you see God as he is, God's great and we're very small. And that's the mark of spiritual health and life and reality in an individual's life, in a church's life, in a missionary society's life. When God is great, everything else looks different. When God is small, you get terribly bothered by all the little things, don't you? The songs we sing, the length of the sermon, the colour of the chairs, what, how we're going to redecorate the building, what time we meet. All the little things become big because God is small. And when God is, when God is great, everything else looks small. That's the God we need to know. And this is the God who confronted Moses, who brings him to the point that he hides his face and then sent him out. So he sent him out, and he is sent out by the God who responds, verse 7. I have indeed seen. There's this lovely sequence of verbs. You can see it there. I've seen the misery of my people, seen with complete insight. He's seen you this morning. He knows, he sees, and he's not only seen. I have heard them crying out. I've heard uh, the concept in the Hebrew of the word hear, you, you don't just hear and ignore. That isn't hearing. Hearing is to hear so as to react. And he knows, NIV, he is, I am concerned. But the word is really he knows to the depth of all knowing. God never just knows in some sort of remote informational way. He knows to the depths of what it meant when they cried out about their cruel slave drivers. And so, verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them. You see, here is a God who responds, who sees, who hears, who knows, and who comes. And the sequence belongs together. He is the God who responds when his people, what did they do? They cried out to him. In the mystery of God's wisdom, our prayers matter. Our prayers count. They weigh in the balance of eternity. They are heard in heaven. Our voice, we may say, brings God down, not because he must, but because he will, because he does. We need to be a people who pray. And, and, and there's clearly a, an emphasis here in this conference on the, on the praying of God's people. We need to be those who pray. I've already mentioned the fact I often go to India to do preaching training conferences. And there's a, a lovely man there who leads one of the centers of the D of Delhi Bible Institute, and uh, he's a converted Muslim. His name's Abdul, Abdul Samed. You'll meet him in heaven. Uh, I went to do preaching training conferences. He's, uh, he's a man who loves preaching. He said to me last time I was with him, we pray more than we preach. Interesting, I was there to do a preaching conference. We pray more than we preach. That's not because he doesn't believe in preaching. Because he believes in the necessity of God at work. And so they pray to the God who responds. Secondly, he's the God who rescues, verse 8. And God's rescue plan is extraordinary. I have come down to rescue them. What's that mean? Well, would you just look? From the hand of the Egyptians, out from the hands of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land a land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, do you see the sense of out of, up out of, and into, out of the hand of the Egyptians, up out of the land of Egypt, into a new land. So is they're going to be rescued out of the slave driver's grip and out of their whips. They're going to be brought out of Egypt and they're going to be taken to a promised land. The, the plan is so gloriously comprehensive. You see, it, it isn't... It's, it's the scale of it. There is a final destination, and that is what's given special emphasis in verse 8. A good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. It's as though the rivers are made of milk and the trees are dripping honey. Uh, it's, it's the image of a land of abundance. Now, I don't know exactly what the Egyptians were crying out for in the, 
in Egypt. But all the indications are that they were crying out because of their cruel suffering. And they were saying, Lord, deliver us. How many of them were crying out for a new land, a land of milk and honey? Well, I'm not sure any of them were. They were crying out for deliverance. But when God responds, his plan is not palliative, it's transformative. What am I going to do for you who cry out to me in the UK today, who cry out in the Ukraine or cry out in, in Africa or cry out in South America or cry out in China or cry out in North Korea? What am I going to do for you? I'm going to give you a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness. I'm going to give you resurrection bodies. I'm going to give you a place where you see me face to face. Yeah, he's not going to give us pain relief. He's going to give us a new heaven and a new earth. You see, we may say, Lord, get me out of this problem. Maybe you've been praying exactly that this week. Uh, You say, get me out of this problem, Lord. And he says, I'll take you to heaven. That wasn't quite what we had in mind. Resurrection bodies and the wiping of every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order has passed away. He who was sitting on the throne said, I am making everything new. I'm making everything new. We didn't ask for that, Lord. We just wanted to get out of this problem. And he says, what you need is everything new. I wonder if you've ever felt that God's not given you what you asked. He hasn't given me a marriage partner. He hasn't given me children. He hasn't given me money. He hasn't given me the sort of holiday I'd like. Why doesn't he do more? Just you wait. No one in heaven is saying, Lord, you haven't done enough, are they? Because when you see heaven, or take your breath away, that God's plan for us is so much greater than we would ever have asked or imagined. See, so it's a fantastic deliverance, the God who rescues so, so gloriously comprehensive And it's so impossible that only God could do it. See, there's a bit of a problem here in the passage. Did you notice Uh, that God has wonderful plans for his people? But hang on. Uh, The Egyptians might have something to say about this, mightn't they? And the Egyptians um, uh, are one of the the most powerful civilizations on earth. Uh, How are these slaves going to free themselves? And how is this shepherd hundreds and thousands of miles away, this failed freedom fighter, how is he going to lead them out? And as for the promised land, it all sounds very wonderful, you know, flowing with milk and honey. But look at it, just look at it in verse 8. It is already the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Won't they have an opinion? Won't they have something to say? Oh, yes, they certainly will. There are a whole bunch of people who will fight the Israelites, and they're more advanced technologically. And frankly, it's, it, it's pie in the sky. The Israelites have a hope. And when the Israelite spies went into Canaan and came back, 10 of the 12 said exactly that. We have a hope. There is no way it can be done. They have walled cities, and they are enormous. And practically everyone is a giant. And we haven't the slightest chance. And they were absolutely right. There is no way that man could do this. Because only God can save. Well, the point is that when God saves, the impossible becomes possible. Uh, You see, only God can save. People enslaved by sin. People like us with fallen natures. People tempted with pride and lust and envy and anger and bitterness and selfishness and blinded by materialism and the evils of our age. And Satan blinding the hearts of men and women across the world, and Satan like a roaring lion looking to devour us who believe. And the church, uh, the church, God's great agency, don't you know what the church is like? Uh, Haven't you noticed how, how, how unimpressive churches can be? They are, on close acquaintance, a bunch of sinners. Uh, And they're failing, and they're inadequate, and they're unworthy. And there's Mrs. Jones who gets upset when people sit in her seat. And there's that bloke in the front who's been coming from years, and he doesn't give a penny to the church. And there are all these people who really are so unimpressive. 
And the church is assaulted by false teaching and divisions and lethargy. And out there is militant Islam. Out there is IS. Out there is militant Hinduism. Out there is waves of apathy and secularism and immorality. And we haven't a hope except that the God of Moses is our God. The God who does the impossible. My parents were missionaries in China. My eldest elder brothers were born in China. My mother was born in China. Her mother was born in China. Her, uh, going back for three generations. But all the missionary endeavor in China seemed just to be overwhelmed in 1949 when the Mao Zedong came to power. The Chinese Communist Party abolished religion. Uh, there were maybe, who knows, three million believers in 1949 in China. And they took the leaders of the Chinese church, men like Watchman Nee and Wang Ming Dao, and they locked them up for 30 or 40 years. And they came out to die. And they were forgotten, or at least so it seemed. And the church in China, how could you talk of a church in China, in communist China, in the midst of the cultural revolution? How could you, how could you say there were any believers in China? And today, this Sunday, there will be more Chinese going to church than there will be in the whole of Europe. And that three million has become, nobody can keep track of how large the church in China is. It's something in the region of 130 million. Now, who has done that? It wasn't the missionaries. I'm named after the last, well, partly named after the last China inland missionary to come out of China. 49, he was in prison till 53. His name was Rupert Clark. He's a great man. But Rupert didn't deliver. He was thrown out, as were all the others. But in their absence, through the seed already planted by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has worked a miracle, and all over the world today, the Chinese are just amazing in their openness to the gospel. In my later years as a pastor, I kept baptizing Chinese. It wouldn't have seemed possible at the beginning. There is a God who does the impossible. But that's not the great act of God to do the impossible. The supreme act of God to do the impossible is Calvary. The supreme act of God is in the apparent complete defeat and utter humiliation of God's Son. The complete destruction of everything that the disciples had hoped for. And everything that human beings would have counted as misery and despair overwhelmed the disciples. Because Jesus Christ was crucified. We talk of the cross easily. Would you have wanted your children to be at the cross? Would you not have hidden their faces? Would you not have kept them at home and locked the doors and say, stay away from such a horrendous, brutal, awful, terrible, utterly dreadful thing? And yet, on account of the death of Christ at Calvary, the salvation of the world is one. And the God who does the absolutely impossible breaks the power of death and sin and hell and Satan. And he's going to take us to glory. And shall I tell you something? Nothing can stop him. He is building his church. And nothing will stop him. So he is sent out by the God who responds and the God who rescues and lastly by the God who uses people. You see, how's God going to do this? Well, surely God could have just, I mean, he just spoke, didn't he, at the beginning. He, he spoke and the universe came into place. It really wouldn't have been difficult for him to have spoken the word and, and all the Israelites find themselves sitting on, you know, under their vineyards in Israel, just like that. And all the Canaanites and so on gone and there they are or at least if he wasn't going to do it like that, surely God could have sent some angels. I mean, wouldn't that seem like a good idea? I mean, are you a pastor of a church or are you a missionary struggling somewhere? And you think, wouldn't it be great if we just had an angel here? 
you know, leading the church. I mean, he'd always preach the perfect sermon. He'd always know what to say to Mrs. Jones or to whoever it is. He'd always preach the gospel perfectly. He'd always, you know, it, wouldn't it have been better if God used angels? Well, apparently not. Apparently not. You see, look what it says in verse 8. It says, I have come down. Well, that's encouraging. God is coming down. Now, the, now things are going to happen. I'm coming down to rescue them and bring them out. Lord, bring it on. Please come. He's coming. Verse 10. So now, so now, Lord, you're on the job. Go, I am sending you to Pharaoh. I mean, isn't that extraordinary? God says, I am doing it. And I've come down and we, we, we end up with Moses. That's not what we had in mind at all. This 80-year-old shepherd doesn't look like a great choice, nor did a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector thrown in centuries later, nor do we look like a great choice. Right, right through the Bible, God brings about his amazing purposes through his people. And in our weakness, God demonstrates his power so that the end, nobody will say, how wonderful we are. And every voice will say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Moses is not at all sure about God's choice. Look in verse 11. Now, it's a wonderful encounter with God. And the first thing Moses says is, who am I that I should go? And God's answer wonderfully in verse 12 is, I will be with you. It's not as though God isn't on the job. He's just not visible but he is present. I will be with you. It's God's great answer to every fearful heart. But I will be with you. But I will be with you. But I will be with you. And there is this dialogue that goes back and forth between the Lord and Moses as Moses comes up with every sort of objection until he reaches his finale in chapter 4, verse 13. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. <laughs> this is this is the great story of the great agent of God, and he's pleading with God to get him out of this. No, please, Lord, just find someone else. And the point is that God was absolutely determined to use this man. Isn't that remarkable? Can you be used by God? Maybe you're going back to very discouraging circumstances. Can God use you? Well, if your God is the God of Moses... The answer has to be yes, even you. And in fact, that's why we're here, isn't it? To serve God's purposes on earth. This week, this month, this year, wherever God has put you, in your family, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your city, in your nation, to shine out his light and truth before it's too late. And as for the people of Israel, for whom all this is being worked, I mean, who are they? Well, look what God says in verse 7. I have seen the misery of my people. And look in verse 10. So I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, my people. What is God's salvation plan about? It's not just about me. It's always about God's people. Moses is going to leave out a people that don't belong to him, but belong to God. They're not impressive people. The Egyptians despised them. Exodus 2, they didn't want Moses. And when they are led out, what sort of people do they prove to be? Hard-hearted, untrusting. They turn aside to a golden calf. They refuse to trust God who, gives them, who promised to give them victory in Canaan. They come under judgment. They have to wander in the desert till that whole generation dies for another 40 years. And yet God will not let them go. They are my people, he says. My people. And God's people are so often disappointed. Have you discovered that? You look at yourself, I find that I am steadily disappointed. And yet, and yet God loves me. And he loves you. And these unimpressive people, he will not let them go. They are his people. He will work salvation for them and through them. And to them he sent the great saviour. To Israel, one born among them, one of their number to be a greater shepherd and saviour than Moses. And then 
He is the one who sends out, sends out his disciples and his church with the gospel to every nation on earth so that through faith in Christ a multitude will be gathered in to who, whom no one will be able to count added to the people of God. And at the end of time, it will take our breath away to see what God has done, won't it? My people. This is our God. This is the God of Moses. This is the God who reveals himself. This is the God who brings us low, that we might learn him, trust him, and prove him, and go out in his name to serve his purposes. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we need to be like Moses, brought low before the reality of the God who isn't just... Uh, theoretical, it's not just uh, wonderful in song or wonderful on the pages of scripture, but wonderful right now to us in reality, in glory, burning with fire, blazing in holiness, working wonders, stooping to people like us. Lord, please renew our vision of you and send us out with confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen.